Good morning. Using my voice, it feels different. <laughs> uh, so this morning's reading is Matthew 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive as many as seven times? And Jesus said, not just seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. And then Luke chapter 6, 37 through 38. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall in your lap. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. I think that's it. Amen. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> my name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And this morning we are talking forgiveness, which honestly is a topic that's a little bit hard for me. Forgiveness feels like one of those things that's like really amorphous, and it means really different things to different people. And, uh, and so <laughs> when, I, when I kind of worked through um, this series and was like, oh, we're talking about sin, we're talking about repentance. I was like, oh no, we're going to have to talk about forgiveness. I'm going to have to figure out what that is. <laughs> In this series, as we're, we've been talking about sin, um, and I apologize for those of you who have heard this a few times already now, but I want to reestablish the metaphor, the imagery that we are using to understand what sin is. Because uh, as we've acknowledged here before, a lot of us have been harmed by some of the more common language about sin, the common metaphors about sin. And so we are trying to understand sin faithfully from a different angle. And, and the way that we're looking at it is by understanding our God, our relational God, our God of love, as a God who created the cosmos, the universe, all of creation woven together in order to be in relationship not to all be one, right? We're not all supposed to be the same, but we are these different threads woven together to be interwoven, interdependent, and in love, in love with all of creation, connected, and in relationship, because righteousness is about right relationship. That is God's plan for the kingdom, that we could all be united in love in that way. And so we call sin anything that tears us apart from one another, anything that wounds that fabric, anything that causes damage to that interwovenness. And that can happen inside the self. You can damage your own thread. That can happen in small bursts of, of individual interpersonal relationships, or that can happen at large scale in systems of oppression and evil that, that just rend that fabric in ways that feel very difficult to mend. And so when we're trying to talk about sin and healing, we need to be thinking about what will heal us back together, what will mend those tears in the universe, in ourselves, in our communities. How do we repair what has been broken? Last week we talked about repentance. And repentance is this idea that when we have strayed from the path of love, when we have turned against one another, when we have started to pull away from one another or pull away from love, we are invited to come back, return to love, return to the ways of God. 
Now that is what we must do if we are causing harm. We are called to repent. And again, that word repent, ooh, it's icky. We've been harmed by it, and so we need to reclaim it and re-understand it. And so if you want to go deeper in that, you can always, if you ever miss a sermon here, you can always go back and uh, listen to the podcast that we have or find all the sermon recordings um, on our website and all of our services on Facebook and YouTube. But if you want to go into that repentance, we, you can go back to that. But forgiveness, then, is this sort of reciprocal requirement of healing, where the people who harm, or, or rather, when we harm, because we are all in that position at some point or another, when we harm, we are called to repent. But when we have been harmed, we have an opportunity to forgive. But what is forgiveness? I think that there's a lot of toxic stuff out there about forgiveness too, even though it may not have been as obvious as some of the ways we've been hurt by repentance. But does anybody here feel like they may have gotten a little twisted up about being told that they have to forgive someone? Yeah. Because we can be equally harmful and toxic by demanding forgiveness from people who have been harmed, especially in this kind of cheap way that says, you know, let it go, move on, give them grace. When those things are, are meant in a sort of empty, hollow way that says, oh, someone did something bad, but we all want to move on from it, so can you just not? That's a really toxic idea of forgiveness, and it's often kind of paired with this, like, toxic positivity, right? Just like, move on, be higher, be bigger, and just don't let it affect you. And I think that that's actually the opposite, the opposite of what it means to forgive. Don't let it affect you or just let it go is the opposite of what forgiveness is. Now, when I was looking into this, I was like, okay, I really need some help because I've got some, some bad definitions of forgiveness that have been given to me. I've been told to forgive in ways that I'm like, that's not godly. I don't know what that is, but it's not godly. So I needed some help to figure out how to orient myself to godly forgiveness. And so I went into the research literature because that's who I am. And there are journals studying restorative justice. Now, I know that's the end of things. I, I know that's part of the path here, right? So we have repentance and forgiveness. Those are both necessary but insufficient precursors to the ultimate goal of repair, right? So ultimately, we want to repair that fabric. We want to pull it back together. We want to restore right relationship. We can't do that without both that repentance that turning back to love, that saying, hey, I screwed up and I've caused harm and I need to stop and change, and forgiveness, whatever that is. We need both of those pieces. Now, each of them together is not sufficient, right? That's, that's not enough. Then we actually need to do the work to repair the harm. But we can't actually do the work to repair the harm until we've got repentance and forgiveness. So I went to that restorative justice research literature and I said, you tell me. You tell me what this forgiveness is. And so a couple of restorative justice researchers defined forgiveness in this way. They said, forgiveness is an internal process by the wronged in that they reduce resentment and offer kindness to the wrongdoer. I found that a very dissatisfying clinical answer. <laughs> the level of my dissatisfaction with that answer made me think that I have some stuff to work through on forgiveness. But, <laughs> but I thought, okay, all right, so I'm supposed to reduce resentment when I forgive. 
And, and that just didn't, you know, that felt a little too close to the let it go kind of a thing. So, so I went deeper into this literature. And they talked about an experiment they did with teaching forgiveness skills to first graders in Northern Ireland. Now, they picked Northern Ireland because of the centuries-long conflict between Protestants and Catholics um, in that place that has become excruciatingly violent, especially in the 70s and 80s during the Troubles. And, and some of these kids are growing up in this generational hurt and, and like violence, like absolute violence and terrorism that happens in their communities every day. And so they were like, these researchers were like, okay, you know, it's, it's really hard to teach adults to forgive. It's like really hard. Let's start with kids. Let's see if we can give them the skills of forgiveness from the beginning and see, you know, how it goes. And, and so when they did this like forgiveness training, they, they also kind of tracked these kids' emotional and behavioral development. And what they found was kids who were going through this program to learn to forgive and increasing their, their capacity to forgive uh, reduced their, both their anger and their patterns of reactive aggression. Now, when I saw reduced anger, I saw that same thing, reduced resentment, and I'm like, you know what? Sometimes anger is justified. Resentment is good. Like, <laughs> maybe resentment isn't good, but anger is. <laughs> but sometimes, right, we, we have these negative emotions. Sometimes those negative emotions are really justified, and I think it's really toxic to say, like, oh, we just, don't, we just want less of that. It was that word reduced that was really catching me up. But when I saw patterns of reactive aggression, I was like, oh, I think I understand what you mean. I think I understand what you mean. Because it is one thing to be angry, and it is another to be so angry and so hot and so hurt all the time that you lash out in that anger. Because the resulting effect of our lashing out in that anger is to recreate the hurt over and over and over again, that reactive aggression. And so what the researchers said was that when that reactive aggression was reduced, when that anger wasn't as present, it made restorative justice so much more possible. So much more possible. Now, some restorative justice researchers actually kind of scoff at forgiveness as a concept. And I think that that's because we're all really reluctant to put any responsibility on a harmed party. Right? We're like, you are the one that was harmed. The responsibility to fix this is on the person who harmed you. And so that's understandable to me. But if righteousness is right relationship... If torn fabric needs to be mended, relationship can only be restored, the fabric can only be healed with healthy, consenting pieces of fabric coming together to be mended. And if someone has been hurt, they need to heal before they can come back together with someone. Now, the wrongdoer must repent. They must return to love. They must change their behavior. They must stop harming. But the harmed has not been unaffected by this. They've been hurt. And that hurt can be an enormous barrier to reconciliation, to repair. And so if the goal of creation is to be able to heal and come together, when we have been harmed, if we want to participate in the healing of the universe, it starts with healing our own hurt. I think about uh, the story of Jonah. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That in the story of Jonah and the whale, Jonah is going to Nineveh, and he's been tasked with uh, which, with inviting Nineveh to repent. And now Nineveh has, has, is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's the seat of power that has been abusing and oppressing his people. And so Jonah doesn't want to do that, not just because he's a petulant child, but because he's been hurt. 
His people have been hurt. And so he's like, I know, God, that if these people repent, you're just going to forgive them. And I'm not on board. I don't forgive them. I don't want them to repent. I don't want them to receive your forgiveness. I don't want to be mended. And so that's why Jonah's running away. Now, when Jonah actually ends up kind of getting back on board, goes in, preaches to the people, the people repent, God forgives them. Jonah's still not on board. He's like, now I am a petulant child. I will not forgive them. I will sit under this tree and complain, God. And they have this little back and forth, Jonah and God, where Jonah is just like, I don't want to do this. And God's like, you're being petty. But they have this back and forth, and it ends there. And I think that it ends there without Jonah resolving, in part because it is so relatable. When you really get into that story from that angle, it is so relatable to say, like, I get it, Jonah. You don't want to let this go. This is hurt that you feel like you need to hold on to. Jonah's people were the victims in this situation, and it feels cruel to require anything of them. It wasn't their fault. And so we can end up feeling very righteous in these moments, except it's not righteousness. It's self-righteousness. And there is no righteousness in the self, only in relationship. And so by holding the self as righteous, we're actually cutting off relationship. We're saying, I am righteous by my own self, and I don't need you, and I don't need to be healed to you, and I don't need to be in relationship with you. So this actually is the opposite of forgiveness. I think the opposite, the true opposite of forgiveness is holding your hurt, your grief, your anger between you and another person like a shield, or worse, like a weapon. We have this idea of the grudge, but I think grudge is a really insufficient word because this barrier that we put up, it can be so powerful. It can be unconscious. It can be like years lasting, decades, a lifetime generations. This is a shield, and it is meant to be protective. It is meant to be protective. It's meant to be wounding sometimes, but it's also meant to be protective. Now, we think that it protects us from further hurt, when in fact it actually just perpetuates the hurt. It holds it in stasis. We don't want to feel the full weight of that pain. We don't want to feel the full weight of the betrayal that the harm caused us. So we try and externalize it. Get out of me. I'll hold you. I'll hold you against someone else. That's what it means to hold something against someone else. It's just taking it, trying to extract it from your body, from your being, from your soul, and saying, I don't want to feel this hurt. You feel this hurt. That doesn't even have to be all the way externalized. We don't even have to be saying anything to someone else in order to hold that against them as a barrier to relationship. And it feels so justified. And maybe it is because they caused that harm. But back in that restorative justice research, they demonstrated how not only does it cause more cascading harm, including generational trauma, harm, and violence, it is continuously, actively or passively, consciously or unconsciously hurtful to the person who is holding that and not moving through a process of forgiveness. Now, these researchers have some important caveats, and they felt powerful to me, and I want to share them with you. One caveat is that in forgiving, the forgiver is neither condoning nor excusing the behavior. That feels extremely important, because I think that a lot of our toxic understanding of forgiveness 
is linked to the phrase, it's okay. That's what we are taught to say when someone says, I'm sorry. We say, it's okay. And that feels like condoning. That feels like excusing. Instead of saying, thank you, because that really hurt. But we are taught to say, it's okay. And true forgiveness is not about excusing or condoning behavior. But if unforgiveness feels like a punishment, it's hard for us to not think about forgiveness as letting someone off the hook. Because that's how, we, that's how we've been trained to think in our culture of, of retributive justice, of like tit for tat, you did this to me, I'm going to do this for you. Because we think that not forgiving someone is sort of like a punishment. You deserve this. You deserve to not be forgiven because you hurt me. And so removing that feels like letting them off the hook. But that tit for tat, that's not of God. That's not how God does it at all. That's not how God is with you. Jonah wanted that to be how God was with Nineveh. But that's not how God functions. Because unforgiveness is not a punishment. It's a shield and a weapon. God's justice is different. And so we have to understand that forgiveness is not letting someone off the hook. Forgiveness is actually creating the space for someone to actually fix it. And one of the reasons that we have a hard time forgiving is because we don't believe anyone's going to fix it. And so we'd rather just hold on to that hurt because we don't want to let it go. Because saying it's okay is actually deeply, deeply insufficient. The second caveat that they offer is that when one forgives, they can and should seek justice. Now here they mean that things cannot stay the same. Again, it's sort of a reiteration of like, we're not saying this is okay. Repentance and forgiveness are precursors to repair. And repair is sustained, systemic change. The third caveat is that the forgiver does not need to reconcile with an abuser who insists on continuing in abusive ways. This can be the hardest to hold on to because it feels really paradoxical, right? We're like, we want to repair the whole universe. We want to come back together. We want to restore relationship. We will not restore relationship under these conditions. And so it can feel like, like, what, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to be in relationship with this person or not be in relationship with this person? And the answer is that we want to have relationship, but we want right relationship, we don't want to restore an abusive relationship. And so we can do the work on our part when we've been in a relationship that's caused harm. We can do the work on our part to say, I am going to work through what I need to work through to forgive. You need to do the work that you're going to work through for repentance. And then once those things are established, we can work together to repair. But like, we can't repair that if you haven't done your work of repentance, and that's not something I have control over. We can't repair if these patterns are gonna stay consistent. That's the whole point of repair is changing that. And so it is perfectly godly, it is perfectly holy to say, I'm going to do my work of forgiveness and I'm gonna hold a boundary until I see that there is evidence that we can restore a right relationship instead of an abusive one. And we may have to wait for the fullness of time with God to do that. And we trust and believe that God is bringing all things back into right relationship. But that may not happen in our lifetime. That may not happen for a long time. 
You don't have to wait for the other person to do their work of repentance for you to do your work of forgiveness. I know it feels like we do. Like, well, I can forgive them once they're actually sorry for what they did. But the work of forgiveness isn't actually primarily about them. It's about what happens in you and how prepared you are to heal. But one of the metaphors that I always come back to is that like, okay, so if I'm doing my work of forgiveness and the person who has harmed me is doing their work of repentance, then we can come together for an embrace. Then we can come back together to heal. But if that person has like a knife pointed at my gut, if I come in for an embrace, I'm, I'm inviting that harm back into my life. I can do the work of forgiving without actually opening myself up to repeated abuse. And again, this is really, really hard for us to grasp because I think that our culture says forgiveness is about letting it go and letting someone back into our lives. But, but it's actually about changing those patterns. And I think that the difference for me is summed up <laughs> in like, screw that person versus I'm just not going to have that person in my life until I can trust that things are going to be different. Like, those are really, really different energies. And one makes it possible that things could change at some point. But that, that kind of gut rejection, that's that evidence. That's, that's a red flag of like, ooh, I got some unforgiveness here. I've got a shield, a barrier, a weapon. I'm, I'm weaponizing my hurt. And I'm trying to protect myself. And the point of that, that, that self-protection, which is truly a self-deception, is about trying to mitigate the harm that has already been caused. It's about trying to hold it in the periphery so that you don't actually have to face it. But what that does is it gets it stuck. It gets it held there always. It's always a little bit there because we refuse to move through it. Sometimes when we go into scripture, it reveals stuff to us that we don't even know how those connections are going to get made. But one of the most revealing interpretations for me of the scriptures in the last few years is when a colleague of mine, um, Tyler Sitt, over at New City in Minneapolis, started talking to me about Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is the name of a fire pit, of like a trash pit, outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it's where all the city's trash and refuse would go. Now, Gehenna is also a term that is usually translated as hell, in our scriptures. You're going to go to the fiery pits of Gehenna. Gehenna, which we call hell, was a real place. Now, Jesus was obviously using it as a metaphor, but what was that metaphor? Tyler explains it this way. He says, our God is a God of, of creation and recreation, but, but the, the God of the cosmos created cycles of death and life and rebirth. And so when we take our refuse, when we take the things that need to be broken down and composted and processed by the earth so that they can become new life, when we take those and throw them in a pit where no oxygen can get to them, where they just sit there like stuck, and then scavengers come, but they can't actually ever work through that whole pile, and fires are burning, but it can't ever consume that whole pile because it is just one stuck mess of uncomposted, unprocessed trash, that is hell. That is hell. 
And that idea of stasis, the things that get stuck, that won't get processed, that we can't move through, that is an experience of hell. And I think that if you're willing to go into that metaphor in your life, think about the things that are stuck that won't move, the things that always remain in the periphery, that is hell creeping into your life. That is that feeling of being trapped, unable to process the hurt, unable to move through and to heal. It is causing harm in your life, in your body, in your spirit. And that is what happens to us when we get stuck in unforgiveness. We've talked before here, probably a year ago. Um, there's, a great, uh, there's a great book called Burnout that talks about burnout as, as one of those many experiences of stasis where we just get stuck and we can't process all of the stress that we've experienced. And they use this metaphor of a tunnel. They, they say, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is an other side of this feeling, whatever it is. But because we haven't processed it, because we haven't really let ourselves encounter this feeling, we get locked in our body and we're just stuck in the middle. And the only way out is through. And this is the really difficult part of forgiveness. The only way out is through that hurt. We hold it. We hold it in the periphery. We hold it as a shield. But if actually we want to heal, we have to face it. We have to feel it. And that can feel so threatening. That can feel so threatening. Because usually under that anger is something else. Grief, sadness, betrayal, longing, emptiness. And that can feel so overwhelming to face. So we just say like, nope, I'm going to wrap this all in rage and put it right here. And no one's going to get through it. Now this can happen in big and small ways. This weekend I had the joy of officiating um, a beautiful wedding. And Cameron was there. And while we were at the ceremony, we were remembering, or while we were at the reception, we were remembering our wedding um, and talking about the joys of that wedding. And as we were talking, I confessed that I have a, one really bad memory of our wedding that I can't seem to let go of. I had an important friend that I actually haven't seen since that day, three and a half years ago. And there's a lot of hurt there. That relationship uh, ended, and ended for good reason. But the thing that I keep coming back to, the thing that I confessed to Cameron was just like playing over and over in my mind, was like a really petty comment they made um, in the, in the run-up to the wedding. And it was just like something they didn't like. It was a choice that I made that they didn't like. And so my gut reaction was like, this wedding isn't about you. That's my pettiness, right? That's me being like, I feel hurt. I'm going to put up this wall. And so this came up, and Cameron and I talked about it. And I just confessed to him. I was like, Cameron, I am just, it's been three and a half years. I, why am I not able to let this go? And the answer is because there's something more than pettiness or this friend, like, centering themselves. Something about what they said really hurt my feelings, actually really revealed a deeper wound that had been there for a long time that I was finally coming into awareness of. And for three years, I think about that comment and my anger flares up. And, like, I need to work through this. There is a piece of hurt that flares up every time I think of this person or that moment, and I think about it way more often than I want to. 
And I told Cameron, I think I'm just like a little angry about this all the time, whether I think about it or not. That is so exhausting. I have made that wound unhealable by refusing to truly face it. And I think that this is actually what Jesus is talking about when he says, forgive and you will be forgiven, or even the portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. It's not that tit for tat. That's, that's our first instinct, right? It's not punishment for punishment. It's actually an observation of the dynamics of forgiveness. It's more like you get out of it what you put into it. You get the gift of forgiveness when you are willing to show up to forgiveness, And when you condemn someone, when you cut that off, when you cut off relationship, that is what you are receiving too. That's not a one-sided thing. When you do that, you do that to yourself. When you forgive, you offer that forgiveness and healing to yourself. But when you cut off, when you condemn, when you hold that unforgiveness, you're doing that to yourself too. We cannot be healed if we refuse to process our hurt. And no one can do that for us. God can do it with us. Our support systems can be present with us in it, but the power that we have to heal when someone has harmed us, it's our power. It's our choice. Now, in this small example of my friendship, I need to explore that deeper hurt. I need to let it wash over me instead of trying to hold it at bay. I need to move through it and get to the other side. And frankly, even just talking about it to Cameron yesterday helped me do that a little bit. Because as we were singing the song today, after passing of the peace, I thought, this is what's underneath that hurt, that anger, that pettiness, that like, can you believe they said that? Is I miss them. And I hope they're okay. And I lost that friendship. And I didn't lose it over one comment. I lost it over years of harm and hurt, and I don't want it back. But I want to get to a place where I can just say, I love you, and I miss you, and I hope you're okay. Because that is the forgiveness that will heal me, and that is the forgiveness that lays the groundwork for a healed universe. And I hope that wherever they are, they are doing that work of forgiving me. Because there are some relationships that are so power imbalanced that only one person has really been harmed. But the vast majority, especially of interpersonal relationships, are not one-sided. And I know that I did wrong. I have had to repent to return to love. And returning to love, returning to God, repenting does not always mean going back to that person. My process of repentance about my harm in that relationship has been about going to God, going to other friends, going to my therapist, and saying, this is some patterns I see in myself that I really want to fix because I've caused harm in a relationship. And so I hope that that friend is able to be forgiving me for that. But either way, I can repent. I hope that they are repenting. But either way, I can forgive. And I know that in that harm that I caused... God has forgiven me. And this is the flip side of forgiveness, being forgiven. Now, it can hurt so badly when other folks choose not to forgive, but that is not under our control. And it can be difficult to accept when we've been forgiven, and we don't feel like we deserve it. 
That's another thing that requires more processing, more moving through that tunnel, more tunnel, more facing what we've done. That confession can be so critical to true repentance and being able to receive forgiveness. But what about God? Now I know that God forgives us, but how? How is God's process like or not like ours? I think that we can trust that God forgives us because God is able to work through anger, hurt, and betrayal without getting stuck. Now notice I didn't say that God doesn't feel angry or hurt because we know that God feels those things. The scriptures are full of God's big feelings about the harm that we cause in the world. When we hurt one another, when we are hurt by one another, it makes God angry. It makes God hurt. It makes God grieve and weep. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. But notice that that's Jesus weeping and facing that, that pain rather than holding it in the periphery and saying, I don't want to deal with this. Screw Jerusalem. God will work through those hard feelings. God can process pain. And so God is always at the ready to work on repair. Now, thinking about this this week actually made me wonder about the cross. The cross is so complicated and contains so much meaning, but it made me wonder what God was experiencing on the cross. Because I know that moving through hurt is sometimes about experiencing the pain finally and fully that we've been avoiding. And so I wonder if one experience of God's on the cross, one experience Jesus had on the cross was the full manifestation of the hurt of the whole cosmos, the hurt of all the oppression in the world, the hurt of all the betrayal in the world, coming together in Jesus' experience in his own body. I wonder if the hurt and oppression and evil in the world hurts Jesus like torture, hurts Jesus like a kind of death. And so God moved through that in that time. God experienced that fully and said, this hurts. I'm going to be present to it. I'm going to let it hurt. And God moved through that and died in it. But God got to the other side, which is, which is resurrection. God got through that torture, that hurt, that pain. God felt the full weight of, of sin, of betrayal in the universe and I think that our fear is that that will kill us. That if I let those feelings in, I will never get out of them. If I let the full weight of this hurt wash over me, that is what I will feel forever. But God shows us that is not the end. That is not the answer. That we can move through that hurt and pain and betrayal. And the other side is resurrection. The other side is life. The other side is healing. The other side is repair. We can rebuild and mend the universe, and Jesus showed us the way because he went first through pain, through death, into life, and God is stitching the universe back together, showing us the path to resurrection and healing. It starts inside. It starts with us. And so as we do the work of forgiveness, we look, we look to the God of Easter. We look to the resurrection, and we say, I know that on the other side of this pain is life. I'd like to invite you to pray with me to end this service, but I want to do so together using a forgiveness litany written by Adrian Marie Brown. 
She has done amazing work on forgiveness and restorative and transformative justice. We'll talk more about her work next week. Um, but Adrian Marie Brown, I think, is a, is a prophet in this way. And so I invite you to pray with me this litany that she has written. think we have it. Do we have it? We have it. Great. Will you pray with me? Forgiveness, pour into me. Fill me up so my every word, every touch can only be you. Give me breath to say what I've done, not in spite of witness, but because I need witness to survive. Give me enough tenderness to offer myself understanding. Beyond good or bad, I was always moving towards life. Let me cast you ahead of me as I wander through this inner realm. Let me trust my shadows. Forgiveness, run through me. Be a river shifting my silt, always changing. Make me a beautiful impermanence. Forgiveness, I need you, and I give you away. Make me a fool who keeps returning to myself, and a crone who knows how wise that is. Amen. <laughs>